going to do something slightly unconventional tonight. We're going to have three readers reading this psalm, and uh, I know that's unusual, but I think it will help capture some of the, uh, the wonderful poetry and the structure that is contained within Psalm 107. So I'll begin. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of man, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let, him, let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, guys. 
a wonderful psalm. And before we look at this psalm, let's pray together. Father, thank you for these amazing words that were written so long ago and yet so relevant to us today. Father, I pray that as we look at this psalm, our hearts will be filled with thankfulness and with awe and with admiration as we consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Make us wise as we look at your love and as we seek to understand your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw on my Facebook uh, newsfeed an incredibly moving story. Uh, it's not every day that on your Facebook newsfeed you see an incredibly moving story. Um, but this was uh, very moving. And some of you may remember it from uh, the actual news. That's how I tend to know the news through Facebook. But if you actually have watched the news, you may have heard this story. It was about a man called Nicholas Winton, who died aged 106. Now, if you don't know who that is, Nicholas Winton uh, was a London stockbroker who, during World War II, traveled to Prague with a mission in mind to help rescue Jewish children from uh, the Nazi death camps. And thanks to his skill, thanks to his uh, sheer determination, he was able to save around 669 children from these death death camps. Uh, And the striking thing about this story, uh, as I was looking at it, was that no one knew that he had done this. For 50 years, no one knew that he had saved all these children until his wife uh, discovered a scrapbook, I think it was, in their attic that recorded the events, and then it became sort of public knowledge. And so I was watching a video clip of Nicholas Winton in 1988. He's on a TV show and they're describing this great thing that he has done and he's there, he's aware of it. But what he is not aware of is that sitting next to him is one of the children that he had rescued during the war. And by then she's quite a bit older. Um, And the TV host says to him uh, that the lady sitting next to him was one of the kids that he had rescued And everyone there starts applauding. And all that she can do is she turns around and she holds his hand. And all she can do is just say, thank you. Thank you. Then the TV host says, if anyone else here owes their life to Nicholas Winton, please stand up. And the whole audience there stands up. It was an incredibly moving video to watch. I was watching it in Starbucks. I was almost crying almost, not quite, but it was incredibly moving. All that she could do was say thank you. Just a room full of people who were there to express their heartfelt gratitude to a man who had saved them. And in many ways, that feeling that they had for him captures the spirit of Psalm 107. This psalm has one purpose. It's there. Verses 1 to 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. Samus calls the redeemed of the Lord. That's God's people from every nation, north, south, east, and west, to come together and to give thanks for God's goodness and God's steadfast love. And how is it? That God's goodness and God's love is expressed to us, to God's people. 
It's expressed to us in how he has rescued us. We're moved. I was moved by, by that story of Nicholas Winton. Really moved. And we should be. But we need to realize that stories uh, such as that, however great, cannot compare to the greatest rescue of all. And that is the rescue that God achieved for humanity through Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate expression of kindness. That is the ultimate expression of goodness. That is the ultimate expression of love. So my aim this evening as we look at this psalm, it's really simple. It's just that we would see afresh what it means for us to have been rescued by Jesus. And that our hearts would be filled with with such admiration for what he has done. That we would be like that woman who held the hand of Nicholas Winton where all she could say was thank you. That's the aim. Here's the problem. Two problems with this, I think, that we'll face today. Firstly, some of you here would say you're Christians, but you struggle to see how God could possibly love you, whether that be through life circumstances, whether that be through suffering or illness, or whether more likely than not, I'm willing to bet, it's because of some sin that is just gnawing away at your life. How could God possibly love me? Second problem. Some of you are here, you would say you're Christians, You know about God's love. You know about God's goodness. But to be honest, it just has no effect on you at all. Our hearts are cold and stale towards something that we know should be amazing, should produce this kind of joy and thankfulness, but it doesn't really seem to do anything. Well, I actually think this... The psalmist, the person who wrote Psalm 107, is aware of this. And I think that's why he wrote it and why it's such a long psalm. And so what he does in verses 4 all the way through to 32 is he gives four illustrations of God's rescuing love to, to break through our hard hearts and to produce that thankfulness that he's called for in verse 1. Now, in the context of this psalm, this psalm is about, it's amazing, 2,500 years old. In the context of this psalm, the original hearers um, were the Jews. This was written about 500 years before Jesus came. And the Jews would sing this psalm kind of as a means of giving thanks for the fact that God had rescued them from exile. So they were scattered um, to Babylon. They had been dispersed completely and God had brought them back. And then they would sing this psalm as a psalm of thankfulness for the fact that God had rescued them. So the four pictures that we looked at that um, Craig and Naomi uh, read to us are four illustrations, I think, of uh, talking about the same event. I don't think it's talking about four different rescue events, but it's four illustrations to talk about the one rescue event, which is the restoration of Israel back out of exile. But that rescue from exile is just a picture of a greater rescue that would come 500 years later through Jesus Christ, where God would offer up salvation for all humanity. So we, the redeemed of God today, we read this psalm as we do all the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. And I want to show actually that these four illustrations are not only illustrations for them of the the return from exile, but actually these four illustrations are illustrations that Jesus Christ himself uses to describe his rescue of us. So let's look at them. I've got an outline on the inside of your service sheet, which may be helpful uh, as we navigate through this passage. First illustration then, 
God's love and goodness is shown in how he retrieves the lost and the weary. We see that in verses 4 to 9. Craig was praying there for the, the 4 million Syrian refugees who have been driven from their home, who have nowhere to go. That's the the kind of people that's described in these verses. They are wandering about the desert. They are hungry. They are helpless. There's nowhere that they can settle down. There's nowhere where they feel that this is my home. This is where I belong. What do they do? Verse 7, in response to their situation, they cry out to God for help. And what does God do? He delivers them from their distress. That's going to be the repeated refrain throughout all these four illustrations. People find themselves in a desperate situation. They cry out to God for help, and God hears, God answers, God responds, and the people respond with thankfulness. Verse 4, they found no city to dwell in. They could do nothing. They were lost. What does God do? Verse 7, it's God who finds them the place to live. It's God who leads them out of the wilderness. It's God who establishes the city. It's God who provides and feeds for them. He leads them home. And this picture of being, of being lost, of, of wandering about, not knowing where you're going, of feeling unsettled, of being hungry and thirsty, is a picture that Jesus uses to describe all of us in relation to God. We are lost, wandering around, searching for truth and meaning and purpose, but unable to find anything that is really satisfactory. The the world's too big, and we can't find our place. We can't find our purpose. And the reason, the Bible would say, that we are so lost as human beings is because we are alienated from the one who made us. There is a a gap between us and our creator. We are lost, wandering, searching for truth and meaning and purpose, but unable to find anything that is satisfactory. But Jesus came to fix that. He came to restore that disconnect. He came, to use his words, to seek and to save the lost. And he does so by doing what we could not do. He shows us the way back to truth. In fact, he doesn't just show us the way. He says that he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He takes us to him. And to come to Christ is to come to the source of all meaning and purpose. Because Jesus Christ is not just some guy. Jesus Christ is God himself come down to us. To retrieve us. To come to Jesus is to be brought out of the desert of confusion and chaos and into the city of truth and understanding. And that means that Jesus' rescue of us, the the, the salvation that Jesus offers, is not just about being found, but it's about being satisfied as well. See, they're, they're wandering in the desert. They're lost and they're helpless. And because they're lost, because they're helpless, they're hungry. It's because humanity is lost that we are hungry for some sort of satisfaction, that there is a a thirst for joy that cannot be quenched. We have hungry souls, to use the the language of verse 9. And the things of this world are not big enough to satisfy that that thirst and that hunger. The famous um, poet, Lord Byron, summed it up well. I can't believe I'm quoting 
Lord Byron. It's far cry for the boy from Dundee, but it's contextualization, just becoming all things to all people here. The famous poet, Lord Byron, summed it up well when he said this, there is no joy that this world can give that it does not take away. That's true, isn't it? There's no joy that this world can give that eventually it does not take away. But Jesus has come to give a joy and a satisfaction that is not of this world because it's him. He's the one that we are made for. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So redeemed of the Lord here at Chalmers Church. Remember this, Jesus sought us out. We may have cried for help like they did here, but he was looking for us long before that cry, like a sheep that has wandered from the fold. Jesus came, Jesus found us. Jesus has shown us the way back to God, and Jesus has held out to us the water and the bread of life so that we could be satisfied. When he died on that cross, Jesus fixed that gap between us and God and brought us back to our maker. He loves us so much that he was willing to be forsaken so that we could be brought in, so that we would not wander about in confusion but would know truth in life, so that we would not be thirsting and hungering after the things of this world that leave us ultimately unfulfilled, but so that we could have a joy and a peace that will well up and increase for all eternity. Give thanks to Christ for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to those of us who were lost. Second illustration. He releases the rebellious prisoner, verse 10 to 16. It's the image here of a, someone trapped in a, a, a dark, dingy dungeon, uh, bound up in chains, forced to work, so mistreated, so abused that they are on death's door. So we're moving here. We're moving from an illustration of being lost in this wide unknowable world to an illustration of being trapped in a small one. I wonder how many of us can relate to both those experiences. Notice in verse 11 why these people are in prison though. What have they done? They had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. They are there. Their imprisonment, their chains are a result of the fact that they had rebelled against God. And herein we have another picture of humanity. What humanity without God is like. Not just lost in the open, but trapped in the darkness. Outwardly, all these images, outwardly everything looks fine. People like this look fine. But there is a bond upon us that we cannot break. There are chains upon human beings that will bind us for all eternity. And it's our sin. We have all rebelled against God. This is true of all of us. It's not not a question of, of whether we're good or bad. This is not a question of morality. But it is a question of our allegiance. We have this default condition in us. Where we have a tendency to ignore the Most High. And to serve ourselves. And ironically, in our culture, that is seen as the way of being free. If you just live for yourself, if you just serve yourself, if you ignore God, then you'll be free. But the truth is, it makes us slaves. To use the term of Jesus, it makes us slaves to sin. 
when we recognize who we really are, when you become a Christian, when you become aware of that truth, of the reality of who we are, it, it can be really overwhelming. And the more you go as a Christian, I think, the more you become aware of it. And the guilt and the shame of that can be such a burden. The more we see it, the more it crushes us. And the result of such a rebellion has meant that we've all got the same punishment, the same condemnation. We are going to die. There's something in us that knows that that's not right. It's not natural. Yet that is where we are bound. But this is why Jesus came. To fix that. Listen to the words of Jesus, Luke chapter 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who have been oppressed. Jesus has come to set us free from the captivity of sin and to break apart the curse of death. So redeemed of the Lord here at Chalmers, let's give thanks. Give thanks for Christ. For it is by his goodness and unfailing love that we are no longer bound by the chains of sin and death. Yes, we do feel far from God because of what we have said, because of stuff we have done. But if you are in Christ, this is the verdict for you here tonight. Not guilty. Not condemned. When Jesus died on that cross, he took our condemnation. He took the punishment of our sins so that we could be free from it. He was bound with our chains, cast into our darkness, so that he could break apart our bonds and lead us through the shadow of death to life eternal with him, to lead us out of the darkness into the, the sweet, fresh air of freedom. He freed us from the misery of sin slavery. Death does not have the last word with us, not if we're in Christ, because the weapon of Satan has now become the triumph of Christ. This is why we, the redeemed, we sing the song of Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. I wonder if some of you are here tonight and perhaps you would say you're not a Christian. Is that how you think a Christian would describe what it's like to follow Jesus? It's freedom. We'll give thanks to Christ for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to us who were slaves to sin. Thirdly, third picture, he restores the foolish sick. We see this again, verse 17 to 22. Um, these verses show us, like the previous illustration, people who are in dire circumstances because of what they have done. But this time it's people who are so sick that uh, because of their folly, that they are refusing food, that they again are on death's door. Some were fools because of their sinful ways, because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. But they cry to God. In verse 20, look what God does. He sends out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. An important aspect of Jesus' ministry was uh, this ability that he had to miraculously heal people. And on more than one occasion, he does so just by speaking. 
He just says a word. He doesn't even have to be in the same room as the person. Just says a word, and they'll be healed. I was reminded of this. I was, um, I'm a bit of a nerd for Lord of the Rings. And so like, every two years I read it. Uh, and it's great, especially if you're preaching, because there's always a sermon illustration in Lord of the Rings. And I was reminded of this this week as I was reading uh, Lord of the Rings for the 212th time. Um, there's a great quote in the third book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King. And the whole storyline of that third book, really one of the main storylines, is about um, this king figure that's going to come back and help overthrow all these enemies. And everyone's kind of eager and waiting for this king. And there's one lady in particular who's really eager, and she's in charge of um, what's known as the Houses of Healing. And she's eager for the return of the king because this is what she says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and thus the true king shall be known. The hands of a king are the hands of a healer, and thus the true king will be known. And that's how it was, the Old Testament promises of of this great king who would come. He would be marked by his ability to heal the sick, and thus the true king would be known. But Jesus' healing of a physical sickness, which he did a lot, was there to show that he had authority to deal with an even deeper sickness. And again, it's our sin. It's our sinful folly. Not only a sin like, like chains that, that binds us, but it is, as Soren Kierkegaard said, the sickness unto death. Jesus associates sickness as, as a picture of sin. Listen to the words of Jesus. Mark 2, verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We need a physician. We need a doctor who can cure us of of this foolish rebellion that our, our hearts have towards God. And that is why Jesus came. And to heal us of that, to be healed of that, is to be healed of the worst ailment that has ever affected humanity. What good is it to heal a paralyzed man for him to be damned for all eternity? Jesus has come to deal with that more severe sickness. So redeemed of the Lord here in Chalmers Church. Let's give thanks to God that we have a great physician who has removed the deadly cancer of sin from us. One who suffered on the cross so that we the redeemed could be healed for all eternity. And despite our folly be brought into a kingdom of everlasting peace and joy where there will be no sickness, where there will be no disability, where there will be no illness, and where death itself will just become a memory. And if you're here tonight and you're feeling the sickness of sin, you are in the right place. That's who Jesus wants. Jesus wants you if you're feeling the sickness of sin. He has come to call the sinners, the sick, He doesn't want those who are fine, but those who recognize they're sick. And his love has called you to be healed from your sickness by giving it to him. We'll give thanks to Christ for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works that have been shown to us who are sick with sin. Finally, final illustration. 
He rescues those caught in the storm, 23 to 32. You really, it's just great, isn't it? The poetry of the Psalms. You really get the picture here of what this storm is like. This is not windy day. This is, um, think of being on a small ancient wooden boat with 50 foot high waves and the, the sky is, is darkened and lit up briefly with flashes of lightning as waves pour over the deck and that boat is hauled into the air. It's terrifying. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of experience. My, my closest to that is going on the Calmac Ferry from Ullapool to Lewis. That is a scary crossing. Um, I think they've, they've changed the boat now, so it's not as bad. But I have been on that where it is going up and down, and people are walking like those described in verse 27. They have reeled and staggered like drunken men. But this is way more extreme than that. The, the whole image is, is of this large chaotic force of nature that is completely out with our control. So in their panic, they cry to God. He hears. He answers. He silences the sea. You know, there's nothing more terrifying and chaotic than a storm-tossed sea. And yet there's nothing probably more peaceful than a calm and still body of water. God turns it round completely. Mark chapter 4. Jesus is asleep in a boat with his disciples when they're caught up in a storm like this. And they start freaking out and they think, what do we do? And so they cry to Jesus, help us. Don't you care? We're going to die here. And Jesus stands up and he yells at the wind and the waves. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And the whole thing goes flat. It's quiet and still. And that power that he expresses at that moment is so terrifying to the followers of Jesus that they say to themselves, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You know, I bet any money after Jesus' resurrection, when they finally got who Jesus was, I bet they went back to Psalm 107 and they would have been like, ah, Of course, we should have known. This is God in the boat with us. Only he could calm the storm. And this God, uh, uh, this Sam is showing, and Mark is showing in his gospel, that Jesus, God of all, has power over every aspect of life. The chaotic events that, that make us seem so weak and so small, that we have no control over. Jesus has it in hand. So redeemed of the Lord here in Chalmers Church, let us give thanks for the chaos of our lives that often seem to envelop us are in the hands of someone who loves you dearly. We know he loves us because he has delivered us from something more terrifying than the ferocity of nature and that is the ferocity of God's wrath on the cross Jesus placed himself under the full weight of divine anger. And there's nothing more terrifying than that. He suffered the ultimate storm so we could have the peace and tranquility of heaven and eternity with him. I love verse 30 in this psalm. Great verse. Look at that one with me. Verse 30. It says, They were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. He brought them to their desired haven. If you're feeling the pressure of life and the weight of suffering and everything seems so out with your control, it's because it is out with your control. 
But remember this, the one who controls the storms, controls the chaos, is the one who will lead us through to our desired haven. He will take us through the storms of life to the peace of eternity with him. Oh, what reasons we have to, what reasons we have to give thanks to Christ for his unfailing love in front of the wondrous works he has shown to us who have been tossed by the storms. Let's conclude verses 33 to 43. I don't have time to look at in these verses in detail because we're at the end, but it's it, basically the imagery there is all, the psalmist is just a celebration of how God reverses, God reverses human fortunes. He can make the good bad, but he makes the bad good. And that is good news for those of us who are bad. And the psalmist's point is this, that God is in control no matter how dire the circumstances, God is in control and he has the power to flip things on their head. You see, without Christ, without Christ, you look fine. You just, you look outwardly fine and you may feel great. But here's the truth. Because of sin, you will be lost. Because of sin, you're bound in chains on the edge of darkness. Because of sin, you're sick with a deadly disease. You'll be caught in a storm that cannot, you have no control over. Let me urge you to do what they do in this psalm. Cry out. Pray to God. Ask for forgiveness. What does God do every time? He answers. And he does. And he rescues. That's why we give thanks. Let me leave you with this. The Hebrew word, God be careful, because Chris is sitting down the front. He's a Hebrew scholar. Um, The Hebrew word for steadfast love is this word, chesed. I love Hebrew. It's like Klingon. It's this word, chesed. I've probably not put enough in that. Um, the Hebrew word, chesed, it doesn't, just mean, it doesn't just mean like a feeling. It's probably better translated, covenant loyalty. It's promised love. It's linked to God's covenant. I'm getting married in three weeks, and it's like the promise that I will make to my wife-to-be. I will promise to always love her, in sickness and in health, up until death. And I take that seriously, and I know that she takes it seriously too. That's why a wedding ceremony is a very powerful thing. But how much more immense is the promise of God's love? God promises he will love you. If you are here today in Christ, he will love you. He promises that. Do you think that that could possibly change? Do you think of life's hard, that that, that's any different? Sometimes God loves us so much, I'm convinced that he lets us suffer and feel the brokenness of this world because he will not let us wander off again. He will not let us be lost. He will not let us get too comfortable and try to find a satisfaction that is out with him. He will not let us settle in a world that is not our home. He will not let us think that our life is in our hands, in our control, and that we can predict what's going to happen. He will not do that so that we will not lose sight of our greatest need and of his rescuing love for us. Those Christians I know who really do love God the most are those who have gone through some of the most horrendous ordeals. He's promised to love us, and he has shown us by reversing our fortunes, 
through the cross of Jesus Christ. We were lost, but Jesus loved us and led us to God. We were hungry, but the love of Jesus brings us our heart's true contentment. We were prisoners, but the love of Jesus has set us free from a rebellion and death's curse. We were sick, but the love of Jesus has healed us from the poison of sin and given us life eternal. We were tossed about by the storm, but the love of Jesus will guide us through the storms to our desired haven. Consider these things if you are to be wise. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what love you have shown us, so immense, so hard to convey, it is the ultimate act of love. Is the source of love from which all love and goodness is just but a muddy reflection. Thank you that we have greater reason to be thankful than, than those people that Nicholas Winton rescued because we have been saved from something far more terrifying. We have been saved from our sinful rebellion, from your wrath, from our lostness, from our darkness. We have been free by the blood of Jesus. Oh, what reasons we have to sing our Redeemer's praise. Father, may our thankfulness be heartfelt and genuine. May you awaken in us a fresh understanding of the love that Jesus Christ has shown to us. And may it change us so that we could be more like him. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.